I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a very beautiful episode. My guest for today is Imogen Barnes. And wait till you hear what she has to talk about. We discuss the comorbidity of OCD and eating disorders and how intertwined they can get. We also talk about the fact that Imogen had to make herself say, I'm committed to the process, even though I know it's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to give it a shot and I'm going to try recovery. And she did. All right, let's jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am sitting with this incredible soul across from me, and I'm really honored to introduce you all to our guest today, Imogen Barnes. Imogen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor, and I've just got instant warm and fuzzies, so thank you for that. I I, I want listeners to know that this is the first time we're seeing each other face-to-face, and there's this instant connection, and I've said this before on the podcast when you are recovered, all the noise gets taken out of the picture and you just notice the soul in front of you. And that's how I felt. So just wanted to make sure everybody knew that. Oh, once again, warm and fuzzy. turning out to be my favorite recording ever. (laughs) Before we get to any more warm and fuzzies, Imogen, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, because you have a lot to talk about. I do. My name is Imogen Barnes. I currently live on the east coast of Australia. I'm not sure why I said currently because I've always lived on the east coast of Australia, but I live in a little place near Byron Bay. I'm very blessed. It's very coastal. I am 22 almost. I just finished up studying biomedicine at university and now I am studying social work. I have a long history with mental health and an eating disorder. And that has really seen my passion to work within the realms of both those things really, really flourish. So I'm I'm finally at a place where I feel like I'm thriving and everything is coming into alignment and I feel so blessed. I love that you said everything is coming into alignment because I always say being recovered doesn't mean that like I'm woken every morning by like unicorns and rainbows, but my life is in alignment. That's what it is. So I love that. Imogen, tell the listeners a little bit about your story, about your narrative, how you how you got to where you are today. I would love to do that. So my history with 
with OCD is where my story with mental health kind of begins. So I had a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder since I was a really, really young, a young kid. And so I can sort of look back upon my life and in retrospect, see obsessive compulsive traits showing up really early. Um, My first recollection of having an obsessive kind of compulsive manifestation of behavior in my life was when I was in preschool. So I was five years old and I was sitting at a lunch table and I had this intense fear of being poisoned by the cleaning products that the teachers were using on the tables we were eating lunch off and I wouldn't eat my lunch off the tables. And I had no idea at the time that what I was experiencing was anxiety, least of all obsessive compulsive disorder. But anyway, that turned out to be what it was. And in retrospect, I can, I can understand that. I had otherwise the most beautiful childhood. I am so blessed. I have a phenomenal network around me. I have amazing relationships, friendships, family, everything like that was so beautiful. And I consider myself so grateful for that, especially now um, that I'm an adult and I've met a lot of people that aren't fortunate enough to have that reality. So I'm very blessed at the connections that I have. I lived a really seamless, happy existence, besides from having like a, being a bit of a worry wart. That's what I would call myself. Um, I had, I had extreme anxiety as a little kid, but apart from that, everything was smooth sailing. My life was okay. And I was traveling okay with the anxiety until I was about 11 years old. And that was when OCD really took its, a really firm hold on me. And at the, the first kind of life pervasive experience with OCD that I went through was when I, like I said, I was 11 and I developed this deep, deep fear. And I'm aware it sounds irrational because OCD is always irrational. Um, but knowing that it's irrational does not take away how severe and invasive the symptoms are in your life. So I was really scared about sleeping alone and being the only one in the house that was asleep or falling asleep last in the house. And yeah, sounds bizarre, but it, it really uh, crippled me at the time. It is crippling. That's the, that's the appropriate, it's not bizarre, it's crippling. And so I, w- I want you to continue because I want people to understand how, how intense OCD can be and how ter- it can be terrifying. So keep going. Utterly terrifying. You're so right. Thank you for validating that. I needed, the compulsion that I experienced at the time was needing to sleep with my mom or needing to have someone near me. And so I went a lot of the time sleeping with my mom at the age of 11. Um, And I was really confused at this time because all of my friends were getting to the stage where they were becoming more independent. You know, we were supposed to be getting, growing up and we're going to high school soon, you know, like we're getting, we don't need our moms and dads. And I was doing the opposite. I was becoming more dependent on my mom and dad and the anxiety in my life was starting to take a hold and really control me. At this point in time, I got a bit of intervention. I started seeing a counsellor. I was aware at this point that I was experiencing a form of anxiety. Um, And so I learned some coping mechanisms. I did some cognitive behavioral therapy and I was able to kind of get my life, my life on track. I was 11. So I did what I did. I just, I didn't, I wasn't really focusing on quote unquote, getting my life on track, but I was, (laughs) I was managing to get through despite the anxiety that I was facing. 
And then I turned 14 and that was when OCD completely took a hold of me. And I don't just mean it was a part of my life. It was my entire life. And I think it's due to when you're 14, you've got a lot going on, don't you? You've got so many hormones going through you. I was just in high school. So I had all these new friends and environmental changes and a lot of stresses. And I think that all influenced the fact that OCD was able to take such a hold of me. But at this point in time, I had a really different manifestation of OCD. And I wasn't aware that what I was experiencing was just that OCD. So anyone who's listening that has an experience with OCD will understand what I'm about to say. Anyone who doesn't might be a little bit shocked. And I'm going to say it anyway, because I'm all about destigmatizing this illness and actually raising awareness. And so I had what is known as harm OCD. And that for me manifested in the form of having really violent, intrusive thoughts to do with harming other people. Um, and the compulsion that I experienced at the time to alleviate the distress that the obsessive thoughts were causing me was to confess the thoughts I was experiencing once again to my mom or to other loved ones, just to seek reassurance that I was A, not a bad person, and B, hadn't performed the obsessive thoughts that I was experiencing in the past. That was a really big fear of mine that I might have hurt someone in the past and forgotten about it. And so I did a lot of reassurance seeking. I couldn't be without mum. So it started interfering how I was able to go to school. In the instance, I wasn't with mum. I would email her and confess my intrusive thoughts that way. And it just became so controlling that I was spending easily 23 out of 24 hours a day engaged in obsessive compulsive behavior. It interrupted my sleep, it interrupted my friendships, it interrupted my schooling, it interrupted everything. And so at this point in time, it was decided I need to start a medication to try and take a hold of this and regain control. So I started seeing a psychiatrist and I did a lot of therapy leading up to this. And I also trialed a lot of different medications and a lot of different augmentation therapies. And I was really struggling to take any control back from OCD. So my psychiatrist at the time suggested that I try what is considered the gold class, the gold standard treatment for OCD when it comes to medication. However, it's a older type of medication. It's a tricyclic antidepressant and they don't tend to use it anymore because it carries a lot of strong, heavy side effects. And there are medications that you can use that perhaps don't carry as many side effects. But I had tried all these metal trialed all those medications and was yet to find any peace. So I started this medication and it came with the warning that I might gain weight. So watch what I eat, which is what my psychiatrist told me. And I am a already clearly obsessive compulsive person by trait. I am perfectionistic. I am type A and my brain, which at the time was very obsessive, clung to the concept of watching my weight for dear life. And I can almost see now when I look back in time, like a little switch flick in my brain that went from someone who obviously had an awareness of their body, but didn't let that awareness of their body control their life. And it switched at that point. And it's like everything aligned, everything perfect, all of the environmental factors, all of my biological factors 
everything that could have meant I was going to develop an eating disorder collided at that point in time. And I just feel like that was the catalyst. That is where my eating disorder journey was born. And so I took that instruction to quote unquote, watch my weight very seriously. And I started controlling the food that I put in my body and the movement that my body performed a lot. So within six months, I had a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. And at this point in time, up until this point, sorry, I had only been receiving sort of therapy targeted towards my OCD. And when you get sick with an eating disorder, therapy has to take a different, it takes a different shape in your life. So I was told I was no longer able to participate in therapy for my OCD because when you have a malnourished brain, a malnourished body, when you're not receiving the nutrition, you can't properly engage in therapy. And so there's not a lot of point doing therapy for OCD if you've got a brain that isn't receiving enough nutrition to really engage in that therapy. And at this point in time, everything shifted in my life. The professionals that I saw shifted, kind of treatment that I received changed and everything really shifted. The roles in my life shifted. You know, my mom became much like a therapist. We started doing the Maudsley method. I couldn't go to school. I ended up having to leave school because I was in hospital. Um, And so everything in my life kind of flipped on its head. And this is when my story kind of takes like a really a, a bit of a twisted turn because my life literally just became for a few years about revolving in and out of hospital and in and out of treatment and fighting treatment and fighting recovery and fighting anyone and anything that tried to come between me and my eating disorder. And it wasn't a, it was a really sad time. In fact, I don't actually remember a lot about this time. I think something that my mind has done to protect me is is blocked out a lot of what happened during those really futile years. So I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse that I can't remember a lot from those years. I wish I remembered more because they were supposed to be really beautiful times in my life, but they weren't. Anyway, I reached the age of 20 and I had been revolving in that hospital for years. I had been non-compliant towards recovery for years. And I kind of sat back and had this moment of realization that I was watching life from the sidelines everyone that I had gone to school with was now in university and living with partners and traveling and developing this sense of self and this life and I was doing the same thing behavioral wise that I had been doing since I was 16 I was seeing the same people I didn't have a life I was performing the same rituals and I had a really small existence and I realized at this point in time that my life was going to continue at this trajectory and down this path if I wasn't going to interrupt this the cycle and the circuit and if I had any chance at recovery if I wanted to have any chance at recovery I was going to have to be an active participant in my own rescue and so then it was not as easy as a decision to change and to, it wasn't as simple as deciding I didn't want an eating disorder but it it was as simple as at least investing myself in the recovery process and that's what I did so at this point in time I admitted myself voluntarily to an inpatient psychiatric hospital admission targeted towards an eating disorder up until this point I'd only had involuntary admissions um 
to medical settings and they weren't healing, pretty traumatic. But yeah, at this point in time, I sort of just became an active participant in my own recovery. I started seeking out recovery because I wanted it, not because I had to. And I started seeing it as something that would give me life and not take something from me. And that's when everything changed. So it wasn't as linear as I made it sound. You know, I I was in and out of hospital for a little bit longer than that. I ended up going to a residential eating disorder recovery center. And since then, it has been a slow, non-linear, but gradually upwards trajectory towards recovery. And I'm at a place now where I am in the strongest recovery I've ever been. I'm happy. I have a life beyond an eating disorder. I study. I have beautiful friends. I think about things that aren't food. I have ambitions that aren't related. Anything towards the food that I'm eating, my body. I am a whole person and not just a vessel for an eating disorder to walk around. And I finally feel like I have rich meaning in my life and I feel so blessed and really proud of how far I've come. You know, I'm, I'm listening to the story and I'm listening to how actually, and I think I just, I used this word earlier, terrifying the intrusive thoughts were for you that you literally thought you were going to hurt somebody. You needed, you know, validation that it did not happen from your mother you're in like an existential crisis and the psychiatrist thinks that it's important to quote unquote warn you automatically assuming that weight gain is a negative thing right we need to warn you and you need to watch what you eat the as opposed to, I mean, and I'm sure the psychiatrist said other things. So I don't want to be like the psychiatrist just told you to go on a diet, but it, it amazes me that when somebody is in existential crisis, that that is a quote unquote warning again, as if it's a negative thing. And it is amazing how that spiraled for you. Didn't you also once go to a dietitian? And they commented that because you were of quote unquote, like normal weight, you didn't have an eating disorder. Did that something like that happen? Yeah, that's totally correct. So my blessed mom, because moms are moms and mom picked up on the fact that my eating patterns had changed and my attitude towards food had changed post seeing this psychiatrist. Um, She noticed, yeah, I was eating differently and she was worried. She was skeptical that something was going on and she took me to a dietitian to get their advice because she was I think I think I think I see an eating disorder develop here you know she wasn't going to say that out loud because I think that comes with a lot of fear and you know that's what she was hoping to have you know I, I think she was really hoping someone would say oh no no it's fine including me um and we did so she took me to a dietitian very begrudgingly on my behalf because at this point in time anyone who's had an eating disorder will understand, especially initially, there's you don't want anyone coming between you and your sense of control and this beautiful thing you've discovered. Um, definitely not beautiful, but that's what it feels like at the time. It just at least, yeah, you get me. So I went to this dietitian, and the first thing she did, I walked into her room. Uh, mom explained to her, you know, I'm a bit worried about Imogen. She's not eating enough, she doesn't appear to be eating enough. Sorry, she's she's her attitude towards food has changed. You know, I'm concerned. 
And so the dietitian pops me on the scale. I still remember her going, oh, no, you're a healthy weight. So I'm not worried yet. You know, uh, I can give you a meal plan if you like, but I don't think you have an eating disorder because you appear quite healthy. So come back if anything changes. And I remember walking out of that appointment, knowing deep down that something wasn't right. You know, I was like, I know that I don't want anyone to stop me necessarily, but I do know that something's not normal here. But it was very invalidating at that point in time. And I'm sure a lot of people can unfortunately relate to an experience like this. And I did kind of walk away with the idea that if I was ever going to have to seek help from this, that I would first have to meet this stereotypical association with what it, what it means to have an eating disorder or have struggles with food. And it was a, a really formative experience. And I, I really wish I could go back in time and see someone who specializes in health at every size or was versed in the world of eating disorders and treating them because that might've changed the path that I went down. You know, someone really being compassionate and validating at that point in time really could have change things for me so it's it's sad to look back and see that experience now was it a gradual experience from resistance to recovery and suddenly saying you know what I need to be the one who's in charge of my recovery like I I need to be the primary agent who's the change agent who's gonna do all this like like I'm, I'm imagining there are people that are saying well okay, Imogen had this idea, and, and I'm saying that somewhat sarcastically, that Imogen was like ready to do it. Well, I'm not ready. So how did you get there? Because I I went kicking and screaming almost the entire way. And so how did, how did, that, how did that shift happen for you that you basically wanted to take responsibility of your life? Yeah. Well, to validate you and that experience, I was very much the same. I like you said, I had this idea. I was like, okay, um, maybe I could change my life. Maybe I do have the potential to do that. But like motivation in general, motivation towards recovery really waxed and waned. And I definitely did not feel motivated all the time. I would have these really motivating moments and these times where I was like, yes, really empowered to take back my life. And then I'd have moments where I went scurrying back to my eating disorder. And that happened for a really long time. You know, it was like two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, three steps back. You know, it was completely nonlinear. But the the kind of change occurred when I decided that I couldn't wait to be motivated all the time because that was never, ever going to happen. I was so ambivalent the whole time. Like I but what changed for me was when I committed and dedicated despite feeling not motivated and despite wanting to go back to my eating disorder because I decided I had been with my eating disorder for years. I had done what it said for years. I knew the outcome of what it was like to listen to everything that my eating disorder was telling me. So I thought, what if I just gave recovery a go? What if I experimented? with doing it unconditionally? What if I did do it and committed to doing it in the absence of the motivation to do so? What if I just see what the outcome is? What that, but at least then I'll know. And if it is as awful as my eating disorder paints it out to be, 
I can always go back to the eating disorder. That's the reality. The behaviors will always be there. I can go back if it's really as terrible as it seems, but don't I owe it to myself to try and to give it a go and to see what a life beyond all of this looks like. And so I just was like, I need, I need to see what it's like. I need to discover it. You, you said I need to discover it. And, and you talked about the commitment and I don't know if it's the commitment to be like, I'm on the recovery train now I'm committed. What I heard you say, I I have heard you say is you were committed to sit in the discomfort, knowing that it would get you to a different place. Otherwise you would just stay in constant discomfort. Say a little bit about that process because being committed to something means you 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 know I you're not saying oh I'm committed now let's just move forward this is going to be very easy you're saying I'm committed and I know this is going to be unbelievable but I'm committed to see it through so what was that shift like for you yeah so recovery is the most uncomfortable experience that I don't, I don't even have words to articulate how uncomfortable it is. And recovery actions feel awful. In fact, they often make you feel more awful than it, than just doing what the eating disorder is saying. How, what, cause often, you know, doing what the eating disorder wants you to do is pretty awful as well. It's not a fun experience. Um, but it was kind of like the recovery action feels terrible but it's a temporary terrible. It's a terrible that does have an end point. It's, it's finite. It is that, I'm not sure if that's how it's even pronounced, but it, it has the fixed end point. It's at some point in time, it's going to end and it's everything's going to move forward. But eating disorder, the anguish that comes from an eating disorder is perpetual. It doesn't have an end point. And so when you can't use an eating disorder behavior to temporarily relieve the discomfort that you're experiencing because of eating disorder thoughts or urges, that discomfort temporarily goes away. But in the long run, it's reinforced and the discomfort that you were trying to escape from becomes more powerful and holds more power over you. When you perform an eating disorder recovery action, the action feels terrible in the moment and it might feel terrible for a while, but eventually it ends. And eventually the terror that initiated the fear in the first place, it's challenged and it grows less strong and it loses power and you regain power. So over time you experience less anguish and more hope, even if it feels like a really long time for that to happen. It's, it's, it's about, choosing your discomfort at the beginning and not even choosing, but it's about knowing that either way you're going to feel discomfort, but one way it's going to end soon or eventually. And the other way it's only going to be reinforced. It's about knowing there's going to be discomfort and do it anyway. You know, like I've had clients say to me, I've said, can you, you know, do this challenge? And they're like, I don't know, it's going to be really hard. And I'm like, oh, I didn't ask if it was going to be hard because I know it's going to be hard. Are you willing to do it? it? That's and and by the way, a lot of people with eating disorders are very harm avoidant, and so it's it's a really confusing place to be in, where you say, "Oh, I know this is going to be really hard, but I'm going to do it anyway." It's it's very 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 complicated. 
what are you doing now? Because now you're you're an advocate. You're you you're on podcast. So so say what what you're doing now with everything. So now I have a little place, a little corner of the internet that you can find on Instagram at im underscore powering. And that is a place where I, I advocate for change. I stand with people. I say, I understand. I am here with you. I validate your experience. And I'm here to offer some hope. I have used my experience with an eating disorder to empower my present and to give my life a little bit of purpose. And I find so much fulfillment being able to stand alongside people and simply be there for them and simply offer them a space to exist unsuppressed and for their experience to be heard and not silenced. I found a little bit of meaning in my life. In fact, a lot of meaning and a lot of love for something that took a lot of love out of me. I am so, so blessed with the opportunity to talk to people, to meet people, to encourage other people to pursue recovery. And I think it's something that I'm going to, I see myself doing for a really long time. I'm studying to be a social worker and I would love to one day work with eating disorders specifically, um, along with other mental health issues. And I'm just feeling so, so empowered to show others that a life beyond this is real and they're able to to get to that life I remember being told that recovery from an eating disorder you know you don't fully recover you just learn to live with it I was like what a that that was awful to hear I was like well what's the point in trying to recover then if it's always going to be here it may as well be in full force so I'm all about taking that dismantling that proving that wrong and showing people that they can get a recovered life and they can build the life of their dreams and that's totally possible is is any of it, and, and I, I don't mean to take a negative spin, but it's just being r- realistic, is any of it triggering? And the reason why I ask is because you're very young in the recovered process or recovery process. I didn't start working in eating disorders till probably, I, I don't even know, I think like seven years after I recovered. And, and I'm just throwing that number out off the top of my head. And so I had a lot of distance from it before I jumped back into it from a different perspective. What is it like in your position? And I'm also sure, I'm assuming, and forgive me for assuming, that it it helps with the recovery process. So are there two sides of this? Oh, absolutely. There are two sides. In the helping with the recovery process, like it definitely empowering was a place that existed for me prior to me even really diving headfirst into recovery. Um, It was a place where I wrote what I needed to read. And I just kind of, you know, started writing what I would like someone to tell me, to be honest. Um, And it kind of helped in that sense. And it still helps in that sense. And then I I do enjoy creating empowering content. But on the other hand, I certainly, especially when it comes to social media, have triggers. And I'm very, very cautious where I exist in the online space and where I, where I go, I don't go digging to be honest, because I'm still, I'm still very vulnerable to certain triggers. And to be honest, the triggers often come in 
oh, it, it's difficult to explain, but I'm sure everyone's going to understand. The triggers come in potentially, I know it's unfortunate, but seeing eating disorders or seeing certain behaviors be performed, but not in a sense that I'm necessarily wanting to perform those behaviors myself, but in the sense that I just am trying to distance myself from actually being around behaviors, right? Like I want to be surrounded by people who are on a similar path to healing or don't have a have a history with an eating disorder when I'm just going about my day-to-day life. I can I, I can put a different hat on when I'm talking to someone and you know we're discussing eating disorders but in a recovery light. But I'm also not at a place now where I would be able to ever, you know, provide any kind of clinical support to someone with an eating disorder or distance myself enough to be a clinician. You know what I'm if that makes sense. So it's it's a funny place to exist. I'm definitely definitely triggered by some things and other things I'm totally not. So it's it's a fine balance. I also want to point out, I have colleague friends that have been in the field for 20 years and then something happens and they start sliding back. So it's not, it's, it's, and I'm not saying that to scare people because I believe in full recovery. I've, I've been fully recovered for over 25 years. Even my friends who have slid back, it's, it's not a full-blown relapse because they have the, they have the insight and the awareness now to know this is happening. I have to reach out to my supports. I have to, you know, be vulnerable. I have to. So I'm not just saying like, oh, Imogen, you're, you're so young in this. So, I mean, it can happen at any stage in your life. I just do wonder if it's a little more vulnerable from where you're sitting at this stage. And like we said, also validating of what, why you're recovered. Absolutely. Actually, I was going to say that for me, seeing someone else have an eating disorder and seeing, you know, eating disorder behaviors be performed at this point in time, and it might change. I'm not sure I can't see into the future, but I'm actually not necessarily tr- like triggered in the sense that I I want to perform that behavior or envious that that person is performing that behavior. Because once upon a time, I would have felt that way to be completely honest, you know, just yeah, throwing it out there and being real, I totally would have been envious. But at this point in time, it actually, it saddens me and reinforces why I'm not engaging in that life and that behavior because I'm able to see now beyond the behavior and beyond the, you know, maybe physical repercussions of that behavior or body types or anything like that. I'm able to see the life that an eating disorder creates. And I definitely recognize how utterly miserable that life is. And I just see if, even if I see a body, I might, because let's, I'm going to be really real. There are certain bodies that I would be triggered by. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but you're, you're just being honest. All you're saying, you're speaking your truth, which by the way, will probably prevent you from being triggered. You're getting it out of your body. You're human. So I encourage you to speak your truth. Bless you. Thank you. I used to see bodies in isolation and I would see smaller bodies and I would look at them with envy. 
but I'm able to understand now that when I see a smaller body, a body that is smaller than my body's set point, I don't see that body in isolation. I see that body in the context of my life and know that for me to obtain a body like that, a body that's below my natural happy place, I would have to maintain an eating disorder to do so. And that never gave my life any meaning. And maybe I'm walking down the street and I see someone that's smaller than me. And the first thing that pops into my head is a bit of envy. I can't live a life without an eating disorder to look like that. But that person might. And it's become about radically accepting. Bodies are different. And there's no such thing as a good or a bad body. And I can be happy for another person that they get to live a life that they're happy with in a different body to mine. But I can't change the reality that if I were to look like that, I'd have to have an eating disorder. So I'm coming to terms with what it means for me to be able to live a life that I'm actually enjoying living and what my body will look like to do that way. And just being accepting that other people's bodies might look different. That doesn't change my reality and my health legacy. And my, my... how I deserve to live a life beyond misery. You know, I don't have to be a small person to have a beautiful life. And I think so often we're told that smallness is a a catalyst for happiness. But for me and for many people with an eating disorder, I think smallness is the catalyst for just that. It's an eating disorder and it's suffering and it's, it's not worth it. It is not worth having an eating disorder just to be small. And I just, I just remind myself that every single day. It's also not worth having an eating disorder to try to navigate through life. If if, let me let me explain that a little bit differently. I I once had a client say to me when I was running a group, like, do we trigger you? And I said, I would never try to navigate through my own fears, anxieties, insecurities, low self-esteem, whatever I'm experiencing that experiencing in that moment. I would never think that an eating disorder behavior anymore is going to fix that. I know that. It's about the opposite of eating disorder behavior. It's about dropping into what I need, asking for what I need, having compassion for myself, having understanding that sometimes I don't have really good days. I don't feel great about myself. But at at the end of the day, I kind of like myself. (laughs) Heck yes. That's, That's the way it is. And so... There's, it's, it's, it's about weight. It's about food. It's about how we, we think that we're navigating through life. And the reality is, is it, it's just more stressors on top of the already stressor that you have. So you're, you're just like a rat running in a cage. And I can say that because I was that rat running in a cage. So I'm not saying it to be like you rats, but yeah, it's, it doesn't get you anywhere, anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I was also a rat running in that cage. And you're absolutely right. That is exactly what it feels like. It has no end. You know, the behaviors are performed to no avail and it never gets you anywhere that is worth being. Mm-hmm. Imogen, I say this all the time and I mean it all the time. I'm so sorry. We have to start winding down. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to share with listeners before we end? I just want to share with listeners that if you are tuning in here and you think I'm the exception to the rule, you know, I'm the anomaly, recovery isn't possible for me and I'm going to have to live this way forever. 
I just want to hear you. I just want to hold you and squeeze you tight and say that recovery is possible. There is a life beyond this. You are capable of so much and you deserve to exist in this world unsuppressed and in your authentic state and live the life in alignment with your values and your goals and your hopes and your dreams. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Imogen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It has been the most beautiful, warm and fuzzy hour of my life. Thank you so much. It has been wonderful. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.